This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. It's the height of warm season crops in our gardens here in the Northern Hemisphere. And this week, I'm so pleased to be joined by Jeff Quattrone, graphic artist, gardener, and heirloom vegetable and seed advocate based in Salem County, New Jersey. Jeff is particularly dedicated to the preservation and sharing forward of the histories and genetics of historic, culturally important Jersey tomatoes, born and bred right there in his region over the past century. In 2014, Jeff founded the Library Seed Bank, a southern New Jersey network of seed libraries. In 2021, he was the keynote speaker for the Seed Library Summit, as well as helping to organize the Slow Food Seed Summit. He is active with Seed Savers Exchange, as well as Southern New Jersey Seed Library Network. Jeff, having long been familiar with your work, I am really pleased to be speaking with you today and to hear more about your current projects. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here and I look forward to talking about seeds. Thank you to the listeners for uh, tuning in. You wear so many hats in the seed world as we know it right now, Jeff. How do you introduce yourself? Uh, I introduce myself as, hi, I'm Jeff Quattrone. I'm an heirloom seed activist and artist. So we've already started talking about your work, which includes having founded a network of seed libraries in public libraries in New Jersey. What year did you get started on that, Jeff? I did. I launched it in 2014, but I started researching in January of 2013. I was new to seeds and I really liked the concept of a seed library. And it was something that I thought would be interesting to have here in South Jersey. In order for me to go out and talk to librarians to convince them that this would be a good program for them to do justice to the work that's involved with seed saving and seed justice, I needed to educate myself. So I spent a year studying seeds, studying seed business. It was a real eye-opening experience. On the peripheral, I knew about GMOs, but I didn't realize the depth of where they were at, that just inspired me to to work harder to do it. When you say that, the depth of where we were at, what does that mean? Describe what you, what you encountered that made you go, wow. Well, I was surprised at the lack of knowledge about GMOs for myself too. I considered myself to be on top of a lot of things. So I really started getting into looking at how foods become extinct and working with slow food and I pay attention to a lot of things and by far not an expert on everything. What I was really surprised about was the consolidation in the seed industry at that time, just the whole intent behind what they were doing. Yeah. What does that intent feel like to you? It feels like to me that it's it's about, and I didn't understand this fully at the time. I just, I felt the intent was wrong, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Mm-hmm. The more that I got into seeds and the more that I found out about seed breeding, and the history of that, the intent to me was just all about corporate profits because they were, or they are modifying these genes to sell their own products. When you look at what people did previous to all this consolidation that started happening with globalization in the nineties, seed breeding, the intent was to create better plants for the public. Seeds were released commercially through seed companies, but there were no patents and people were free to take these new improved varieties that had better disease resistance or a better taste, and they were free to use them in their breeding purposes too. 
So for me and my sensibilities and what I'm about, I believe in universal access being the core of equality and looking at how the seed breeders were doing this previous to all the patents that are going on today, it just fit better for me. That was one of the things that really surprised me. I mean, it, it didn't surprise me because I understand what corporate profits are about, but it just disturbed me. I think disturb is a better word because it was about food and control. Give listeners a sense of your earliest influences, people and places and plants who grew you into someone for whom this idea of developing a seed library and researching the heck out of it before you even introduced it to make sure it was going to work and being disturbed by consolidation and messing around with the genetics of seed, like that these would be important values to you? My parents, I'll start there. They're very open people. They encouraged us to be charitable in the sense of helping people that needed help and not not to turn a blind eye to that. And they were also very proactive, encouraging us to be engaged in civics, to vote in elections and to pay attention to politics because, you know, politics drives policy. And they weren't the most political people in the world, but they really encouraged us and instilled in us that sense to be aware and to be involved. And when you see an injustice, to step up and do the best you can about it. And they also taught me about food. Uh, when we moved from South Philadelphia to South Jersey in the 60s of uh, the next year, my father set up this big garden in our backyard. I had two older brothers at the time, so he had a couple people that were able to help him out. And he was a big student of Rodale. We learned about organic gardening. He was very adamant about that. My mom was one to uh, teach me about growing flowers. And the month of August would be preserving. Hot summer time here in South Jersey and for the whole month, these big pots on the stove canning uh, food. But we'd have food all throughout the winter. So they were my earliest influences. And unbeknownst to me at the time, and this contributes to the wonder of all this, when we moved to Turnersville, that's where we moved in South Jersey. It was one of the new suburbs that were happening and farms were being converted to um, track housing. So we didn't have very many big boxes. And there was a farming supply company, Oral Lennons and Son, a couple towns over. And that's where we would go and buy our goods for the lawn and for the garden. And they had a seed room. And this seed room was fascinating to me as a kid. I'd jump out of the car and I'd run to this room and it had this incredible earthy aroma and all these drawers full of seeds and these bins full of onions and potatoes. And there would be farmers there and the farmers would be talking to the people at the counter. They'd be talking to themselves. And I just love that room. I think it was, you know, the colors and the textures. Now that I'm an artist or I became an artist, you know, color and texture is a really important part of, of the work that I do. And in the food that I, I grow and eat, um, as it turns out. So uh, my grandparents came here from Italy and they settled in Philadelphia and my parents were first generation. So they knew a lot of farmers who were friends or distant cousins. And there were many times during the summer that we would be showing up on farms. And whether it was, you know, riding with Charlie to asparagus auctions or picking peppers on Carmen's farm, these were all influences 
in my life. Lettuce has come back a few times in my seed work that really brings this full circle. What is your kind of more formal educational arc and professional arc prior to this moment where you get involved in plant work? Well, I um, ended up going to, um, at the time, it was Stockton State College in Galloway, New Jersey. It's now Stockton University. And my intention, um, I, I applied to be a history major, and I got accepted at um, another state college. And I wasn't quite sure if I wanted to be a history major. So I spent the first uh, year and a half out of college taking some college courses at a community college just to get a sense of, do I really want to go to college? I don't want to, um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I was getting kind of bored of studying uh, management and I had the salesmanship course. And the book that was required was How to Dress for Success. And, you know, my small community college didn't have it at the bookstore, so I had to go to the mall to buy it. And I get to the mall and I walk into the bookstore and there's this big, big display of Born to Run, you know, the Bruce Springsteen story by Dave Marsh. And, you know, I'm a Jersey guy and I love Springsteen. And I'm like, I'm buying that book. <laughs> so um, I bought that book and I went to, I went to um, campus the next day, cut my class. And I was sitting there reading this book and I thought, okay, if this guy from New Jersey can go and do what he wants to do, I, I got to go and do this. So I went and talked to a counselor and I said, I really want to get into radio and TV production. And they suggested that I check out the program at Stockton, which I did. And I fell in love with the campus. The program looked good. I applied, I got accepted. And then three weeks before my semester started, I get a letter in the mail saying that my program has been cut and I'm now in a visual arts program. Wow, the universe like sent you a curveball. Okay, so yeah, keep going, keep going. I love this. Curveball is is a good term. <laughs> I had my loan paper signed. I had to buy a camera for the um, you know the radio and television production um, major. I had my camera, and I figured, what do I have to lose? I'll go check it out. And I was commuting my first year. You know, Stockton was about um, sixty miles from where I was living with my parents, so got Stockton, and I fell in love with art. I learned about this beautiful visual language and the history of it and the creativity of it. And I had a lot of creative energy at that time, and it gave me a really great outlet to put it into. So it was a fine arts program. And again, you know, not knowing anything about art and just loving everything about it. Um, you know, my parents were kind of like, well, are you going to be a starving artist? Um, you know, it's a hard life. Um, why don't you think this thing through? And I went to uh, my counselor and I said, hey, there's this commercial art program at this other state college. What do you think? And she asked me this question, which is probably one of the big defining moments of my life. And she's like, do you want an education or do you want a job? And I said, I want an education. And she's like, okay, well then stay here. She's like, but if you decide later that you want a job, you apply for the commercial art program. She's like, I'll give you a letter of recommendation, but just think about what I said. Which you clearly did. Yeah. Yeah. It reached a part of me that was undiscovered that needed to be failed. I chose photography as my medium. I would have loved to have had the, some of the film courses, but the film program got cut too. And I just thought that photography was the most commercially 
applicable medium that they had there. So I was still trying to find this happy medium between the commercial art and, and the fine art. And I got out of um, got out of college, couldn't find a job, and I ended up finding my way into graphic arts. And I worked as a graphic artist doing print design for marketing collateral. I won an award for I won two awards actually for a cookbook that I'd signed in 2008. So it's been um, it was a good way for me to make a living and still be creative, and it allowed me the opportunity to pursue some of the more fine art type of things on the side. I mean, at one point, you want to talk about another curveball, I decided to become a milliner and I was a hat maker for a while. <laughs> this is Cultivating Place. Jeff Quattrone is an artist and heirloom vegetable and seed advocate based in Southern New Jersey. We'll be right back after a quick break when Jeff will share more about how he became involved in seed, in Slow Foods' arc of taste, and in establishing the Southern New Jersey Seed Library Network. Stay with us. Hey, so if you're not familiar with Slow Foods USA and Slow Foods International and The Ark of Taste, I think you will find it really compelling. The Ark is described as that conceptual and physical space in our gardens and fields where, quote, heritage meets biodiversity. The Ark of Taste is a living catalog of delicious and distinctive foods facing extinction. By identifying and championing these foods, we keep them in production and on our plates and the plates of our children and grandchildren. Agricultural biodiversity and small-scale family-based food production systems are in danger throughout the world due to industrialization, genetic erosion, changing consumption patterns, climate change, the abandonment of rural areas, human migration, and human conflicts. The Ark of Taste invites everybody to take action much the same way that Jeff is taking action with his Jersey tomatoes. In some cases, products need to be rediscovered and put back on the table, and producers need to be supported and to have their stories told. In other, such as in others, such as the case of endangered wild species, it might be better to eat less or none of them in order to preserve them and favor their reproduction." End quote. This is the ethos Jeff is putting to work in his Jersey tomato research and reintroduction. It makes me wonder what foods or ingredients of our families or regions, foods or seeds or plants to grow in our gardens, we might want to keep a caring eye on right where we live. We're back now to our conversation with Jeff Quattrone, artist and heirloom vegetable and seed advocate based in Southern New Jersey. 
After working as a graphic artist for some time in the Philadelphia area, Jeff was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, which affected his hands and his ability to work at a computer for long hours designing. He returned home to South Jersey, and after the Great Recession of 2007-2008, he found a creative, physical, and mental health outlet at the community garden near him, around the same time that he became aware of seed libraries in general and in the Slow Food USA and their Arc of Taste. As we come back, Jeff is sharing how the Arc of Taste introduced him to the idea of culturally created and important foods going extinct. I had been familiar with Slow Food since the late 90s. I wasn't actively involved with them, but I knew about um, who they were and what they were doing, but I wasn't, um, I didn't know about the Arc of Taste. And once I started uh, looking into the Arc of Taste, um, that's when I found out that food can become extinct. And that was a concept that just didn't, it didn't register at any point in my life because I grew up growing food. I live in a agriculturally rich area. Supermarkets are always packed. Um, but it was the biodiversity that was um, the big part of why foods go extinct. And, you know, that biodiversity is so important. And that's when I really started making a commitment to finding a way to work with this. I can start growing these vegetables and specifically tomatoes because I'm a tomato guy. And I can start growing these really rare tomatoes and I can start talking to people about them. It lit something inside of me. So I was blogging about that. And then in 2013, in January is when I saw the Seed Library article that got me started in seeds. So that's full circle about, you know, how it all happened. Essentially, you read an article about what a seed library is, and you decide that this is a, a point of agency you want to act on. Yes, because I it was the biodiversity piece that really got me. And the connection to seeds and biodiversity, and that was uh, something new to me. It was like a light bulb went off, kind of. Exactly, right? yes. Yeah. And because I was at this point where, where do I go from here? You know, this new concept and this new area of exploration presented itself to me. And I'm a very curious guy. And once my curiosity um, gets engaged, tenacity kicks in and, you know, I'm off. And um, I read this article and I thought, this is a really cool concept because I, you know, I love libraries. I spent so much time in libraries when I was a kid and I had gotten away from libraries and it gave me a new opportunity to get back in touch with another part of my life. And I just thought this is actually a brilliant idea because, you know, if you look at a distribution network, almost every town has a library. And if you can get seeds into a lot of these libraries, your distribution network is there. And, you know, libraries are great. In my mind, they're a cornerstone of a free and open society. Their mission is to have open and free access to information for all. It seemed like that was a good match for seeds. People would have the opportunity to have this open and free access to seeds as well. There was nothing going on like that in South Jersey. And I thought, well, this is something new. At that point, because it, I, I mean, the way I understand the history of this, Jeff, is that you 
began that library, and from that library, the Seed Library Network began, and it, it sort of was a catalyst for many other libraries getting started across the country. The movement grew from Richmond Grows. So that's the Seed Lending Library in Richmond, California, right? The one founded by Rebecca Newborn? Richmond Grows is a very good organization, and that was where I think that they were, the article was about them. Okay. And I was actually the first in South Jersey to bring it to South Jersey. Okay. And I was one of the first to offer my my assistance in getting uh, this set up for people who were interested in doing this. I have a network that I set up here in South Jersey, and that's what I'm responsible for. Anything outside of South Jersey, I've had people from all across the country um, you know, get in touch with me and ask me for advice. But um, what I'm, the thing that I am uh, responsible for is bringing it, the concept to South Jersey and setting up the, li- the network of libraries here. I was inspired with what I saw at a national level, and I adapted it to my area. At what point does, because Seed Savers is already involved, you're already involved in Seed Savers at this point, when you begin the seed library work, where does slow food and the arc of taste come in? And what do you see as the importance of the confluence of these, all these different branches in this expression of life we know as the seed world? Well, I think when it, it all goes, it all comes back to biodiversity. Um, Mm -hmm. The arc of taste is a catalog of, of local food biodiversity that's at risk. And um, most of it is is local food biodiversity. I mean, you know, breads were um, like a bread or a particular, um, we don't really, well, there were no processes involved, but, you know, if you're talking about a bread that is very specific to a community, um, you know, the the biodiversity there could be connected to um, the grains that are involved. Um, So, you know, it all gets back to um, looking at this catalog of genetics. And this catalog of genetics is what um, seed companies are after. And, you know, so with slow food and with the arc of taste, focusing on preserving local food biodiversity, you know, that gives me a platform um, to engage or that gave me a platform to engage more um, with chefs and farmers in my mind, because slow food is about the whole movement of food where seed savers is focused specifically on seeds. And, but the common thing that they're um, preserving is, you know, the, the genetics of it and keeping those genetics um, free and open as opposed to under corporate control. So um, in my view and for my approach to everything that I do about seeds, it all comes back to biodiversity and it all comes back to the genetics. And for myself and for what I was doing, I can see myself, you know, pivoting between working with slow food and working with um, seed savers to, um, you know, bring this awareness to the public in different levels and with different audiences. Right. So at this point in the story where you have these, again, these sort of three tributaries into all of this work aimed 
at helping to protect uh, and maintain biodiversity and this catalog of genetics. What does your actual gardening, growing seed life look like? Um, are you are you actively maintaining your own garden, saving your own seeds? How are you involved at like in the soil aspect of it? Well, I grow in a community garden, so um, which I'm very fortunate that um, I'm able to do that. And um, my gardening life is, um, it's about growing tomatoes. <laughs> um, I laugh at myself about this because what I do is, um, you know, I will have one or two of a lot of different varieties. And, you know, there are times when I might have 30 to 35 different um, varieties of tomatoes in my garden. And um, with that, when I first started um, with the whole seed library thing that I'm doing, I started saving a lot of seeds, but because I don't have the capacity to grow them out and to keep them viable, I stopped doing that because it just seemed like, you know, my refrigerator was getting filled with all these seeds and I wasn't doing the process for myself for any of it any good. So these days um, I grow food for myself. This year though, as part of a program where I was reviving two functionally extinct uh, Jersey tomatoes, I grew uh, Burpee's Sunnybrook Earliana. And my garden this year was about that. And um, as it turns out, my community garden plot is about two miles from where Burpee had their Sunnybrook farm, experimental farm here in South Jersey in Woolwich Township. So to have the opportunity to uh, revive a functionally extinct tomato and to grow it a couple miles from where the originators um, grew it and made their own selections because the Earliana was a tomato that existed um, before Burpee made their own selection. Um, you know, it was just, it was, um, it was everything, you know, everything came together in that garden plot. And along those lines, I was, um, doing research at uh, the Smithsonian because um, Smithsonian Gardens has um, this great trove of uh, burpee papers. So I was able to read the actual seed journals uh, from when they were uh, trialing this, of the, when they were trialing Sparks early on to make their selection for burpee Sunnybrook early on. And then I had been reading previous to this, I was reading, um, what Altley Burpee wrote in his catalogs uh, promoting this tomato because he was fascinated from this tomato from 1901. He was including it in his catalog, even though um, it wasn't um, one of his varieties. So here I am um, living this history, uh, recreating this history, you know, looking at, um, you know, from as a seed guy, I'm reading the seed journals as a marketing and communications professional. Um, reading the marketing end of it. And um, so that's what my garden was this year. And I don't know <laughs> if I'm ever going to be able to top that, but um, you know, it was, um, it was really, uh, it was really stunning. It was really stunning to, um, to do all this and, you know, and um, you know, the seeds are being collected. I have seeds of uh, 0.35, 0.35 of an ounce of seeds which will be um, distributed through the Gloucester County Library System, um, through their library system and other 
um, um, independent libraries in Gloucester County. And, you know, I'm trying to build up these collections of um, seeds in the counties where they were originally bred or introduced. And as those um, collections grow, and we can distribute the seeds um, throughout the other seed libraries throughout South Jersey. This is Cultivating Place. Jeff Quatron is an artist and heirloom vegetable and seed advocate based in southern New Jersey. We'll be right back after a quick break when Jeff will share much more about his research and reintroduction of historic and culturally important South Jersey tomatoes. Stay with us. Hey, so I love how this week's program riffs off of and builds on the conversation we had with Kay Green of Hudson Valley Seeds just a few weeks ago. It reminds me again how one garden and gardener connected even distantly to the work of another gardener can make for really culturally scaled change and contribution. Jeff read about seed libraries and Richmond Grows, a seed library in California who had been inspired by Kay Green and his first seed library back in New York, and he decided to start his own network of seed libraries in New Jersey. That work led to his contributions and collaborations with Seed Savers Exchange and Slow Foods and seed libraries as a concept in our world. It is my garden connected to yours and to yours and to yours, back to mine and so on. A fabulously great, generative, symbiotic, positive feedback loop growing the world we want to live in. The world we want to see nourish and grow all of our children and grandchildren and lands and planet mates. So be it. This is part of our work, gardeners. We're back now to our conversation with Jeff Quatron, artist and heirloom vegetable and seed advocate based in Salem County, New Jersey. As we come back, Jeff shares much more about his current work researching and bringing the histories of regionally based bread, canned, and sold Jersey tomatoes to life once more. You know, the Jersey tomato and how it's, you know, the intersection of local tomato seed breeding, uh, local culture, local food history. And what I found, um, you know, I'm the more I, the more research I do into this, um, you want to talk about a rabbit hole? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm finding this really great connection uh, between seedsmen, early seedsmen in South Jersey and canning companies. And, um, you know, it's a really fascinating uh, connection. You know, when I started doing this, uh, you know, Campbell's Soup had its made a breeding program and Campbell's Soup built a big multinational corporation 
in large part to the tomato breeding program that they have. Right. Right. And, um, you know, that was, you know, that smart key name that can get a lot of attention for people, which is great because then, you know, it opens up a discussion about um, biodiversity and, you know, seed sovereignty and, you know, look at what Campbell's did and, um, you know, look at what um, another company here, PJ Ritter, that was here in South Jersey, PJ Ritter, uh, they were in Bridgeton. They had an experimental farm. They bred their own tomatoes. They ended up um, creating, uh, creating their own seed company. They had um, the, rich, um, the Ritter Seed Company, which in um, the 50s, they claimed that they were the largest supplier of certified tomato seed in the world. Um, other research that I've done has said that they were one of the largest suppliers of um, tomato seed in the world. But again, you know, they also had a canning company. And um, just yesterday, I was doing research at the Salem County Historical Society, and I came across um, an article in a newsletter where they took an oral history of someone in late 1890s, and they were mentioning how this... Um, gentleman who I can't think of his name right now. He's new to all my research, but how he was both a canning company and a seed company. So I have um, I have verbal um, confirmation in a oral history that supports all this, you know? I mean, yes, there is, you know, um, you know, there's this document here, there's that document there, but, you know, it just, um, to find, that piece of uh, information in oral history, when you're looking for something that's kind of obscure, when you because people just generally don't think about the connection between um, seedsmen and canning companies, um, it's just uh, it's just great, you know. So and so, okay, pull this all together for me. Okay. That correlation between the seeds people. And the canning companies, what is the insight you find so valuable there, Jeff? I find that it's a great example of uh, seed and food sovereignty, you know? Okay. Yeah, because uh, what I'm doing now is I'm looking at this history of what went on here in South Jersey, and it just blows me away that, um, you know, how much canning was going on here and, you know, uh, what the seed history was here. And, um, you know, it looking at this from a seed and food sovereignty point of view, and that's, that's what that's the lens that I'm writing my book from, right. And, um, you know, that is a, a good illustration of it, because, you know, you're saving seeds, you're canning the food, and then you're growing, you have the seeds to grow again next year. So you're securing the food for yourself, you're securing it for your community. Um, you know, so it is an extension of um, seed and food sovereignty in my mind. Okay, so now I want to just dial in a little bit on that. When you use the term seed and food sovereignty, define what that means to you exactly. I base my view on uh, seed and food sovereignty on what La Via Campesia uh, released in the mid 90s that um, they had um, they had put out a uh, manifesto. Um, you know, they were, it was a response to the Green Revolution and the criminalization of um, peasants and seed saving. So, um, 
you know, the gist of what they were saying was that, you know, for food sovereignty was that um, it's the rights of people to secure their own culturally appropriate food without, um, you know, government or, um, you know, corporation um, oversight, you know. And, um, you know, along the, along the, um, with that uh, manifesto, part of what they, they issued was that um, they were against the criminalization of peasants and seed saving. So when it comes to seed sovereignty, I, you know, instead of uh, the rights to food, it's the rights to save seeds. So that is, that's, um, that's my approach to it. Right. On your newest sort of curiosity track, uh, which I, I kind of love how your, um, your arc has taken you from your own sort of beginning to garden, sort of out into the stratosphere of the seed world and, you know, national and international public policy and decision making and this big sort of macro work. And then you are now dialed right back into your exact place with uh, a very specific plant line. Um, maybe talk a little bit more. I mean, you, you've given us a pretty good summary, but I'm super excited about your book. So, uh, you know, what, um, and, and, <laughs> and not just the book because of the particular story that's so compelling, but just as you already made clear how that particular informs the universal in important ways? Well, um, I'm really excited about this book. I, I have to say, um, you know, it's, uh, it's personal narrative, you know, um, telling my story of, um, you know, growing up here in South Jersey and the influences that I had that we had talked about earlier. And, um, you know, not realizing all the foreshadowing that was going on um, when, um, you know, during this whole, whole thing. So, um, and I love, you know, Jersey has, we have our pride here in Jersey, you know, um, yes, it's you a Jersey do. thing, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you know, it's bold, it's passionate, it's, you know, it's unapologetic and, um, it, it's a Jersey thing. And, um, and, you know, we get, we get, um, we get knocked a lot, but, you know, we don't care about that because we know how great we are here and how, how great our tomatoes are. But the thing is, is that um, in my mind, uh, the Jersey tomato is iconic and it deserves its place, um, you know, at the national and international level. And, you know, at, at a regional level, people know about it. Um, but I want to, I want to tell that story um, to a broader audience. And uh, when I started doing this, um, I didn't realize the depth of, of, of what was involved here. I mean, the more research I do into um, the connection between seeds and the canning industry, and then I look at the innovation that was going on in the early 1800s here with you know the technology at the time um, to improve canning and glass and farming and um, seeds and it really all um, it all really comes together and um, you know the complete story of food you know it starts with the seed and ends in a, in a jar or a can and I think that um, and in our bellies yes <laughs> right yeah well yeah true that's true in our bellies that's the that's ultimately what we're doing. Yes. Um, 
but you know, I think that um, looking at that, I think that there's some lessons here that that can be learned for um, you know people in the in the um, you know working the food system. And I just want to I just want to tell this story. I want to um, I want to honor all the people that were involved that did all this great work. And I want to um, showcase that you know um, the Jersey tomato is um, you know a Bill Campbell soup. You know Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol, there's know, a quote so from great. Andy Warhol that that he drank um, he drank uh, Campbell's soup for for lunch for 20 years, and then he ended up doing a soup can series. And you know, the soup can series is you know its own thing, but um, you know, as it turns out, the tomato soup can is the you know the most um, popular of the series, and you know, people. I want people to think a little bit more about the tomato that was in that can, because again, there was this incredible historic breeding program for tomatoes that um, were bred specifically to thrive in our, our soil here. Um, you know, they were bred for taste. They didn't have to, since everything was fresh from the farm, shipping uh, concerns weren't part of the breeding process. So, you know, there were all these great things and these tomatoes are bred for disease resistance and the seeds weren't available to the public because uh, Campbell's wasn't in the seed business, they were in the food business. So it was a very closed um, type of system. And, you know, from looking at something for um, that you want to grow, you want something that tastes good, you want something that's very productive and you want something that's disease resistance. So, you know, and these are great tasting tomatoes and, you know, um, you know, they, they made it in, into Andy Warhol's um, level of artwork. And also, you know, when you look at um, the, uh, I keep using the word iconic, but, uh, you know, the iconic um, um, comfort food um, of tomato soup and grilled cheese, you know, a lot of that is thanks to the Jersey tomato. So, you know, we're looking at Andy Warhol, we're looking at, you know, comfort food, we're looking at, you know, Jersey pride that we grow in our own soil here. And I just want to share this with the world and I want the world to join us in celebrating it. And that's what it's all about, really. Well, and there's something that I also love about the agency behind it there, because in raising up this, this storyline and this breeding program and this distribution uh, system that is locally based and very efficient, but also flavorful as well as profitable, as well as, you know, economically driving a region and hopefully environmentally not degrading a region, at least in its original inception. It offers a, a wonderful model, not dissimilar to home gardening itself, wherein you save each particular. And that right there is helping to offset this opposing force in our world right now that would lose all particulars in one homogenized universal that's controlled by one group or, or profit decision-making board of directors. And that right there is the greatest resistance to, to this loss of biodiversity in our world. And, and it, it really, I think, epitomizes as well 
your sort of warrior level work in our world to preserve these genetic lines. And, and you're offering a model for how anyone could do it by, by finding those stories, raising them up, bringing them back to life, and then having people, you know, feel that pride and feel that passion so that then they protect it. Wow. That, oh my gosh, that's, you hit the nail on the head right there. I was getting chills when you were talking about that. (laughs) Because no, seriously, you got it. You got it 100%. I mean, you know, it just, um, there's a lot to this. And, um, you know, when I, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about this and, you know, um, and I love it. And, uh, you know, and I'm the, I'm the most fortunate guy in the world that I can do this. When I, when I started, um, when I started my library seed bank project, when I started doing the research, in 2013, and I started to uncover this hidden seed history that exists here in New Jersey, in Southern New Jersey, my stretch goal, like the ultimate thing that I could think about was, you know, if I can find one Jersey tomato and bring that back to South Jersey, you know, I'm, you know, I've accomplished everything. I'm up to three now, and I have a fourth for next year, and I'm tracking down a fifth. I mean, you know, who gets to do that? You know, I mean, who gets to even hit their stretch goal once, but then turns it into five, you know? And okay, so um, tell us the five, tell us the five okay. varieties. Oh, okay, so the first one was the Keeley number seven. Um, you know, this was, um, uh, I love this story, a farmer, a farmer's granddaughter got in touch with me looking for a tomato that her grandfather uh, developed in Gloucester County. And uh, it was called the Killing Number 7. I was able to find seeds uh, for her from the Sand Hill Preservation Farm in Iowa, which is a great source for heirloom seeds and poultry. Uh, Great people love their work, encourage people to support them. And she wanted to share her family's farming legacy with her daughter in the garden. And, you know, that's a beautiful story. And that's another reason why I do this. And I get that because I understand, you know, the farming, the the growing legacy in my own life. So then she sent me an article about her grandfather. From 1925, he had gotten a National Farming Award. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt was the governor of New York at the time. And he's the one who gave gave the award out. And I'm reading this article and I'm like, there's more to this. I mean, there, you know, right. so I did all this research and I went to the local, the County Historical Society, and I found an article from 2005 that named, that specifically uh, called out, not called out, but mentioned Willard Bronson Keeley and his Keeley number seven tomato being a significant tomato locally and somewhat nationally in the 60s. So in my mind, of course, you know, I'm like, I got to get this tomato declared a um, Gloucester County original heirloom. So I went to the freeholders and um, through some back and forth, um, they ended up recognizing the work of Willard Bronson Keeley and the Keeley number seven um, as a Gloucester County original. So um, that was great, you know. So that was the first one. And then um, this year- Power to the tomato. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) right, exactly. And I want to give a lot of credit to the freeholders. They were um, very great to work with. I had tried to do this with another tomato in another county and they didn't want to have, they didn't want to be bothered with me. So um, they were great to work with. They were like, you know, send us the history. We don't normally do uh, proclamations for tomatoes. We usually do them for people, but 
you know, they gave me a shot. Mm. So there was that one. There was um, this year I'm doing the Garden State Tomato, which is Campbell's Soup variety. And then there's Burpee's Sunnybrook Early Anna, which is a Burpee variety. And, you know, what was great about this year and having these two tomatoes is like these are marquee names that you can really engage the public with. You know, mm -hmm. people uh, people know Campbell's, people know Burpee. And mm -hmm. um, you can get a lot of attention that way. And, you know, when you're trying to raise the awareness of of, of all of this, when this opportunity presents yourself with, you know, these marquee names um, and respect for the work that they did, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really a, another gift that, you know, of this whole process. So that's, we're up to three there. Uh, next year, we're doing the Valiant Tomato, which was a tomato that was bred by uh, the Francis Stokes Seed Company when they were in Vincent Town in um, Burlington County, New Jersey. Um, again, got seeds from um, Sand Hill. And then the fifth one is a tomato called Lazinski, which I have heard from uh, people that I know is a Salem. I live in Salem County, New Jersey, and it's a Salem County tomato that I don't know much about right now, but I'm going to find out. So, yeah. so that's the so five. great. Yeah. That's so great. When are, when is your deadline and when are you hoping this will go to press this book? Well, I haven't sold it yet. So um, my, my goal is to have it written by the end of this year. And, um, you know, I am working with an editor who, um, you know, has experience in the publishing world. So, um, you know, he has advised me to just write it, just get something okay. written. And yep. then, um, you know, I'll hand it off to him, have him, you know, do his magic with editing, and then we'll try to sell it. So okay. I, I wish I'll I could tell I wish I could tell you. I mean, you know, okay. if if it's self, you know, if it's self-published, that's something I've done before, but I would rather go through a publishing company. Yeah. Yep. Um, so yeah, I'm very aware of our time now. And I so appreciate the generosity of your time. You know, as you look back at these 20 some years, 23, 24 years, you've been actively engaged in the seed world and in this advocacy work. Is there anything you would like to add for listeners who are home gardeners or, or even armchair gardeners and readers and appreciators about the importance and the urgency of, of this level of work in our gardening world, Jeff? Well, I would encourage people to, um, you know, save seeds as much as they can. Um, you know, there's a there's a concept that we talk about in um, in seed saving called backyard biodiversity, and you know, seeds have a, a way of adapting to the where to where they're growing um, to a certain extent. So, if you're gardening and you're um, saving your seeds uh, from year to year then you're creating the best possible um, seed that you can grow on, you know, for yourself. And um, so I would encourage people to, if they can save seeds, to save seeds. Not everybody can or wants to, but if you are in that um, place where you can't or you don't want to, you know, get involved with the local seed library. You know, find out from your public library, 
if um, a C library exists there. And if they are, you know, volunteer some time, um, you know, or if policy is your thing, um, you know, look into um, some, doing some policy work. Um, you know, find a way, you know, match your passion to something that you can apply when it comes to seed. Because the way I look at this is, is that every seed that gets saved takes a little bit of power away from the corporate people who are trying to control the seed world. So, um, you know, it's a very quiet and subtle madness or, you know, act to do, but, you know, um, good for that. Good for that. Good for that. One seed at a time. Thank you so much for your time. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you, Jeff. Oh, this has been great. Oh, thank you. I, I, I'm, I'm thrilled. I, I love talking about this and this has been a great conversation with you. And um, uh, thank you to the listeners who are um, listening. Jeff Quatrone is a graphic artist, a gardener, and an heirloom vegetable and seed advocate based in Salem County, New Jersey. Jeff is particularly dedicated to the preservation and sharing forward of the histories and genetics of culturally important Jersey tomatoes, born and bred right there in his region over the past century. For more information on Jeff's upcoming book about historic Jersey tomatoes and a GoFundMe page to help bring that book to fruition, head to cultivatingplace.com and follow the links under the podcast tab to this week's show notes. Join us again next week when we revisit a favorite conversation with David Godshall of Terramoto Design in Southern California. David's home garden and Terramoto's work is highlighted in my book with Caitlin Atkinson, Under Western Skies. David notes that creating gardens is building civilizations in miniature. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible by listeners just like you. For many images from Jeff Quatrone's work as a seed librarian, as a seed historian, as a tomato grower, and as a graphic artist, head over to cultivatingplace.com and look for this week's show notes and now transcript under the podcast tab there. That's all at cultivatingplace.com forward slash podcasts. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler with tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.